This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming tonight on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. But we're also, this is a, a first for us, we're also live streaming at the same time on my Rumble channel, which is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, a special hello before we get started, and a thank you, a heartfelt thank you to Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan, two of our Star Chamber patrons, and Tim and Deep Paul, thank you so much for your generous support uh, and loyalty. It means the world to me. It really does. If you'd like to become an official uh, patron or Patreon supporter, sponsor of Strange Planet, just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet uh, coming up in hour two uh, for those of you who are fans of cryptid horror author cryptid researcher D.A. Roberts will be here he'll discuss his apex predator series of books uh, which uh, deal with the legend of the werewolf uh, we'll also talk about dogmen and Bigfoot, and perhaps the Native American legend of the Wendigo. D.A. Roberts, coming up in hour two. Uh, this hour, the ancient Roman god Saturn has gone by many names, including Kronos, El, and Lel, and Molech. And the sons of Saturn were worshipped by the warrior cult of Philistine giants of David's day from the Old Testament. And in his, in his uh, latest groundbreaking book, from uh, our Derek P. Gilbert's uh, The Second Coming of Saturn, Derek reveals how powerful people believe the stars have aligned to bring back the old god Saturn. The, the uh, occult symbols embedded in the United States Capitol that points to the return of Saturn's reign and why Lucifer is Saturn 
not Satan. Evidence that Saturn was the leader of the rebellious sons of God. And uh, we'll discuss who is Satan, actually. Or rather, who is Saturn, actually. A new age began December 20th, 2020, called the Great Conjunction. A meeting in the sky of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, which heralds the beginning of the Age of Aquarius. A new golden age, perhaps, to be ruled by Saturn. Derek P. Gilbert hosts the news analysis program 5 to 10 for Skywatch TV and co-hosts the weekly video program Sci-Fi and Unraveling Revelation with his wife, author, and analyst Sharon K. Gilbert. Derek is the author of the groundbreaking books A Bad Moon Rising, The Great Inception, and Last Clash of the Titans, among others, and his latest is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and The Return of the Watchers. Derek, how are you? Welcome back. Thank you, Richard. It's always an honor to be here. Uh, Enjoying life when uh, the uh, Missouri Ozarks, where things are still free. (laughs) Oh, they are. Everything's pretty loose down there. Life, yes. We we are basically able to live our lives uh, without too many restrictions. So uh, we we are blessed. We've got friends on both coasts, and uh, I know there in Toronto, you under a few more restrictions uh, than we are here in the Ozarks. Well, God bless. Uh, this is kind of a um, uh, a Missouri theme show because my guest in the second hour, uh, writer uh, D. A. Roberts, is also down in the Ozarks. So it's a uh, it's a Missouri it's a Missouri program tonight. So oh, good. The the Roman god Saturn, um, as you point out, goes by many names: Amolek and Enlil and El and Kronos. But how do you how did you determine that all of these different names actually are referring to the same entity, Saturn. This really grew out of the research that Sharon and I have been doing over the last couple of years for our previous books, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, Veneration, even Last Clash of the Titans. It's no secret that uh, Kronos of the Greeks and Saturn of the Romans are the same entity, and the classical historians, the Romans and Greeks of the first few centuries of the Christian era, um, knew that the Phoenician god Baal Haman was just Kronos and Saturn by a different name, and they equated him also with El of the Canaanites. So uh, a- after getting through our last project, I thought, okay, well, we've got this great conjunction coming up on the winter solstice of 2020, a date that, of course, has significance in the, uh, the occult realm, where Jupiter and Saturn met in the sky at zero degrees of the constellation Aquarius. I thought, okay, I've got all of this other research that I've sort of been collecting while researching other stuff connected to uh, the ancient religions of Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean world. So decided to try to piece it together. And when you start um, following those lines of research, it's pretty clear that uh, even the people of the ancient world, through uh, multilingual uh, god lists, you know, uh, essentially uh, the equivalent of Google Translate from the, like the third century BC or whatever, uh, would equate the god Dagon, for example, of the Amorites, with El of the Canaanites and with Enlil of the uh, of the, uh, the the Akkadians and Sumerians, and then likewise they would equate Enlil with Kumarbi of the ancient Hurrians and Kumarbi with Dagon. So when you start piecing it all together, 
it's clear that this entity, going by different names, occupied the same slot in the pantheons of all of these different cultures. He was the god who took over from the sky god, sometimes by force. Uh, in several of the myths, he, he castrated the sky god in the process, and then was later deposed, overthrown, sometimes violently, and then confined to the netherworld. This pattern repeats, and uh, we trace this back uh, through human history, going back more than 5,000 years. Ah, 5,000. Okay, so I mentioned off the top that you, you um, discuss how Saturn was worshipped by the Philistine giants. So Goliath and, and his tribe, let's say, mm-hmm. they, they were a Saturn-worshipping cult. What did that, all in, what did that entail exactly, the Saturn-worshipping cult? Okay, well, not under the name Saturn, of course, but the Philistines, when David and his men went out to do battle with the Philistines, we see this in, the, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 18, if I remember correctly, uh, possibly 21. Anyway, 2 Samuel, when David and his men go out to confront the giants, there are a couple of them who are named uh, and are described as descendants of the giant, descendants of the giant. And this is where we start getting into Hebrew uh, and where it gets difficult for me because I don't speak or interpret Hebrew, but uh, using the work of those who do and trying to piece this together, you find that the word descendant in the Hebrew is not ben, which means son of, it's uh, yeladeh, which is better translated as uh, one who was born in the house of someone, like a servant, or one who is initiated into a group. And a scholar by the name of Conrad, Conrad LaRue argued some years ago that these um, uh, giants who were described as descendants of Rapha, or descendants of the Rapha, which is a singular form of Rephaim, the giants that the Bible connects to the Nephilim of the pre-flood era, um, were more accurately described not as literal blood descendants of, but a, a warrior cult who venerated the, the spirits of what they believed were their mighty kings of long ago, the Rephaim. Now, since in the book, and in our previous book, Veneration, Sharon and I showed how the Rephaim were the demon spirits that proceeded from the bodies of the Nephilim, the giants destroyed in the flood, which giants were created by the rebellion of the sons of God, mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, uh, I put this together and suggest that the, uh, this, this entity who was described as the king of the Titans, uh, Saturn of the Romans, Kronos of the Greeks, um, and like his other iterations, like uh, Enlil and uh, El and Dagon and Molech, all had netherworld connections, underworld connections, that this entity was the most likely um, candidate for the, uh, the, the, the leader of this rebellion named in the book of First Enoch, Shemiyaza, who was described as the chief of the Watchers. And we know that these entities are in the abyss, in Tartarus, in fact, because in Second Peter 2, verse 4, he mentions the angels who uh, God did not spare when they sinned, but cast them into hell, except the Greek word behind the English word hell there is Tartarosis, Tartarus, which is not the same place as Hades. Hades is where the run-of-the-mill human dead were confined. Tartarus was a special place in the underworld, to imprison rebellious uh, supernatural entities. Right. This is like a maximum security prison. (laughs) 
Exactly right. Threats to the divine order of things. That's where you put the rebel angels. So these rebellious angels or sons of God from Genesis 6, I equate with the titans of Greek uh, and Roman mythology, Shemiyaza, chief of the watchers, equated with Saturn, Kronos, or Dagon, who would have been the chief god of the Philistines, the creator of the spirits, the demons worshipped by Goliath and his colleagues. So, so Saturn is Shemirazai? Yes. Yes. In my, my view, I think that uh, equation holds up. All right. But um, we mentioned the Philistines, but it goes back further, right? You, you, you take the, the worship of Satan back further to um, the Urkesh in northern Mesopotamia? Right, right. Urkesh is a site that was uh, excavated between 1984 and 2011 by a husband and wife uh, team of archaeologists at the UCLA. And, and their research is really phenomenal because this city was the oldest known city founded by a group of people called the Hurrians. The Hurrians. They're mentioned in the Bible as the Horites. They were developing urban civilization in northern Mesopotamia at the same time the Sumerians were developing their civilization in the south. And the most striking find at this city of Urkesh, which is in northeastern Syria, almost a literal stone's throw from the border with Turkey, um, was a temple dated to the middle of the, it's about 3500 BC, dedicated to this chief god, Kumarbi. Kumarbi is just another identity worn by Kronos, Saturn, etc., etc., etc. Back about 1940, Texts were found in what is now Turkey that um, described how Kumarbi became the king of the gods and then was overthrown by his son. And when scholars translated those texts from the uh, uh, the Hurrian language, they discovered, hey, wait a minute, this sounds exactly like the story of Kronos and the Titans being overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians, except that it's much older. Again, that Hurrian city established about 3500 B.C., and because of certain type of pottery that uh, is very unique, uh, the Bucciolatis, the uh, archaeologists from UCLA, were able to trace this culture back to about 1,000 years earlier, to about 4500 B.C., in the Ararat Plain, which just happens to be the, the lowlands below the mountains where Noah's Ark is supposed to have come to rest. Ah, all right. And and what is the connection between uh, Saturn and the word abyss? Saturn was confined to Tartarus by Jupiter, just as Kronos was confined to Tartarus by Zeus. So it's the same story, um, just different names by different cultures. This uh, worship of the old god Kumarbi, who I argue in the book is the uh, probably the oldest historical reference to this entity, other than Shemiyaza in the Book of Enoch. Um, the worship of Kumarbi at Urkesh involved the use of something called the Abi, A-B-I, that was a, a ritual pit that uh, the Bucciolatis were able to excavate down to a depth of about 22 feet, but they only got about halfway down because of the... They were concerned about the structural integrity of the pit collapsing on the workers. So it was, uh, but, but here's the thing. The, the Hurrian culture was around for thousands of years, a couple thousand years. 
it didn't disappear until about the time of the judges in uh, the Bible. So around 1200 B.C., uh, the Hurrian culture finally disappears from history. So for at least 2,000 years, the Hurrians occupied northern Mesopotamia, and they were in contact with uh, the Akkadians and the, uh, the Amorites and the Hittites who occupied Turkey. And the Hittites preserved their religious texts. So the Buchalantes were able to connect the ritual practices at ancient Urkesh, thanks to these texts preserved by the Hittites for like 2,000 years later. Uh, a scholar in the mid-1960s, even before Urkesh was discovered by the Buchalatis, studied the linguistics uh, of the Hurrians. He became an expert in, um, in the Hurrian language and determined that, contrary to the assumption of most historians, that uh, civilization began in what is now southeast Iraq with the Sumerians and spread out from there, that the word abzu in Sumerian, which is where we get the word abyss, actually was uh, derived from the Hurrian word abi. And so the abyss, the abzu, the netherworld, Tartarus, essentially uh, began the whole concept of, of this netherworld domain where you had to summon the gods from the underworld by going into a pit and sacrificing and then raising them up and then sending them back and then having to seal off the magic circle through which they appeared. That goes back to the ancient Hurrians, and the oldest occurrence of this, uh, again, documented at this city in northern Syria, probably as far back as 3500 B.C. Derek P. Gilbert is with us. His latest is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. So, disciples of Saturn, or, or worshippers of Saturn, what 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 kind of practices did they involve themselves? I mean, was there was there human sacrifice? Was there child sacrifice? Well, that is a common thread among the more recent uh, identities worn by this uh, this entity, Saturn, Baalhamon of the Phoenicians, and Kronos of the Greeks. It's established that all of them welcomed child sacrifice, and uh, in the book I explain why I identify Molech with this entity as well. And Molech in the Bible was infamous for requiring that his followers offer their children in fire, burn them alive. But this practice is known and documented at Phoenician sites um, as late as the, the classical era. So in the centuries leading up to the, the Christian era, and even into the early Christian era, the Phoenicians were still taking part in this. The most well-known of the, uh, the rites of Saturn, of course, is Saturnalia, which was every year in Rome between December 17th and the 24th. Um, but uh, Saturn, by the time of the Romans, even though he was still accepting child sacrifice, his reputation had been rehabilitated somewhat uh, from his uh, earlier iterations. And uh, the Temple of Saturn in Rome was, uh, because he had, it was believed by the Romans that after Jupiter had... Um, deposed him and cast him down to Tartarus that he escaped. He fled to Italy where he uh, set up shop as a farmer and ruled over a golden age where life was wonderful. And so the Temple of Saturn in Rome was where the Roman government kept its treasury, which meant its, its hoard of gold. Um, but interestingly, when, uh, when the Temple of Jupiter was being built in Rome, when it was under construction around uh, 526 B.C., the last king of Rome, before it became the Roman Republic, uh, decided that uh, the Temple of Saturn would be moved to the bottom of a particular hill, 
which had been called Mons Saturnus, the Mount of Saturn, and replaced with uh, these, this new temple of their, their chief god, Jupiter, the storm god. And um, in the book, I explain how that sequence of events actually led to the United States Capitol being named the Capitol. Ah, um, I just, we're just heading into a break here in a couple of minutes, but I, based on my limited knowledge of uh, the Roman worship of Saturn and Saturnalia, um, I mean, you mentioned that they've sort of, they, they, they rehabilitated Saturn's image because my knowledge, uh, you know, shallow as it is, is that, that uh, Saturnalia was a time where, where slaves would sit down with masters, they would share a drink. Uh, it was, you know, there was maybe some gambling going on, but certainly no mention of, you know, human sacrifices. Was so? What, no, I mean, was it? Go ahead. Why am I? Roles, roles, am I wrong here? Or? The, no, no, you're you're correct. The role, it was in fact the, the most popular of the annual uh, festivals in Rome. And uh, again, this this is why Saturn's, like I say, Saturn's reputation, his uh, image, had been sort of rehabilitated. He certainly was considered more favorable in Rome than Cronos was considered to the Greeks. But um, yeah, it was a time where where the societal norms were were overturned. The slaves were served by their masters, and people played practical jokes on one another. Um, but there was an earlier Greek festival that did the same thing called the Cronia. And it's not surprising because, again, this is the same entity under a different name. And, in fact, one scholar whose uh, field of expertise is Greek religion traces this back to an older Hittite text to the Hurrian god Kumarbi. And so it appears that what we call the Saturnalia today actually originated with the old Hurrian god Kumarbi hundreds of years, perhaps even more than a thousand years before the first documented uh, celebration of the Saturnalia in Rome. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a quick time out, Derek. Stay put, we'll come back, continue to discuss the ancient worship of Saturn, the second coming of Saturn. Derek's latest, the second coming of Saturn, the Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. Back with more in three minutes. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back. Derek P. Gilbert stays with us from Skywatch TV. And his latest is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and The Return of the Watchers. Um, so how do we how do we square um, Saturn with, well, we, you sort of have gotten into this a little bit, but squ- square Saturn with Lucifer. Uh, in order to do that, don't you have to get Saturn back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? Yes. Um, but that's the interesting thing about the uh, passage in Isaiah 14 from which we get the word Lucifer, which actually was just a translation into Latin um, by Jerome, when he translated the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, he translated the, the Hebrew Helel ben Shakar, which means light bringer, son of dawn, into uh, using the Latin words lux for light and ferris for carry. And we have anglicized it into Lucifer, assuming that it was a proper name. It's not really a proper name. Um, it's, it's sort of a, an, an odd transliteration of the, uh, the Latin. When you read Isaiah chapter 14 and the parallel chapter in Ezekiel 28, which scholars agree describes the same event, there's nothing in either of those chapters that 
mentions the temptation of Adam and Eve as the reason for that particular rebel being cast out of Eden. And I think the, we, we've been taught that, it's, uh, that it must refer to Satan, because that's the only enemy that most Christians have been taught to believe is actually real. But when you read the Old Testament more carefully, and this is what Sharon and I have been trying to do the last five and six years, is, is take the Bible at, at face value. When God refers to the gods of Egypt, for example, in Exodus 12, 12, and says he's going to execute judgments on them the night of the, uh, the Passover, who is he talking about if they're just imaginary? In Psalm 82, when he takes his uh, position in the midst of the divine council and says, uh, you are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High, but like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Who is he talking about? Most Bible teachers will say, well, but he's talking about the judges of Israel. But that disregards the actual Hebrew meaning of the words sons of God, Beneha Elohim, that never refers to humans. So we've got to consider the possibility that maybe another rebel is in view. And I could, it would take more time to go into some depth here on Isaiah 14 uh, and Ezekiel 28. But I think the bottom line is this, when you look at Isaiah 14 in the context of the other references there to the Rephaim, the shades in English, who are stirred up to greet this rebel when he is cast down to Sheol, uh, and uh, reference in Isaiah 14, 19 about uh, being cast away from his grave like a loathed branch. And we showed in a previous book that that word translated branch, assuming that it's based on the Hebrew word, netzer, is actually based on an Egyptian loan word that was used to describe the god Osiris, the god of the dead, uh-huh. who's being mm-hmm. cast out because you are like a loathed dead god. Um, Satan still was roaming the earth, at least through the first century. We see in the Old Testament, in the time of Job, that God is in the heavenly courtroom of, of, of uh, the, the Most High. Hey, uh, look, at, look at this dude Job here. I think I can tempt him to uh, curse your name. And uh, in Zechariah chapter 4, Satan is accusing the high priest of Israel in the days of Zechariah and Zerubbabel, uh, a high priest named Joshua. So he was not confined to the netherworld like this entity who is described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So I suggest that this is the uh, leader of the rebellion that we read about, in those first four verses of Genesis chapter 6, expanded on in the early chapters of the book of First Enoch, the watchers, the chief of the watchers, Shemiyaza. And uh, what I think is really intriguing about this is that when you read Ezekiel 28 closely, and uh, you read about how every precious stone was his covering, those are the same stones that were um, described when God gave the instructions to Moses for building the, uh, uh, the ephod of the high priest. So this entity... I argue Shemiyaza, or Saturn, to the later Romans, may have been the high priest in Eden before he decided to come down to earth and uh, uh, destroy what God had created by first uh, contaminating the human bloodline and creating a new hybrid race to take over the earth, and secondly, teaching us forbidden knowledge, things we weren't supposed to know. So, um, Shemiyaza, or Saturn and the other uh, fallen angels that uh, gather at Mount Hermon, um, you know, to begin their rebellion. You say that there is a connection, an interesting connection between between Mount Hermon and the Mount of Olives, uh, where, well, 
explain what it, that connection is, the significance uh, also of Mount, the Mount of Olives. Well, Mount Hermon was where this rebellion took place, and it was also known to the Canaanites around ancient Israel that that was the mountain where their creator god, El, who is just another identity worn by this by this uh, old rebel, Shemiyazah, Saturn, El, that was his uh, mount of assembly. That's where he held court with his uh, consort, Asherah. At the base of the mountain is um, the Grotto of Pan, which is a cave. It used to be the source of the Jordan River, but it was believed in ancient times to be the literal entrance to the netherworld. You would sacrifice uh, an animal, and there are documented uh, memorials to human sacrifice on Mount Hermon. Uh, the sacrifice would be thrown into the waters in the grotto, and if the sacrifice sank, it was accepted by the god. On Mount, the Mount of Olives, in the time of Solomon, you know, Solomon was the one who constructed the, uh, the Temple of Yahweh, the Temple of God, on the, the uh, Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount today. Mount of Olives is uh, just across the Kidron Valley, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look down onto the Temple Mount. When God directed David and Solomon to build the temple, he didn't pick the highest hill in Jerusalem. So Solomon, through one of his wives, probably his Ammonite wife, was uh, cajoled or coerced into building a temple or a high place for the God described in the Bible as the abomination of the Ammonites, Nocom. Milcom is just a Semitic word that means king. A scholar has shown that Milcom is just actually El by a different name. The Hebrews called him Molech. All right? So because Solomon essentially put a temple to Molech on the summit of the Mount of Olives, looking down on the temple of God, they called the Mount of Olives the temple of corruption, the temple of... But uh, it's, there's a definite article, the, is in there, temple of the corruption, but the word also means destroyer. Mount of the destroyer is, uh, I think, a better translation of what the, the, uh, the priests uh, following the time of Solomon referred to the Mount of Olives, because you've got this temple to this entity, Shemiyaza El Molech Saturn, looking down on the temple of God. But just like the, uh, Mount Hermon, which was, the, uh, which was believed to be the mountain sacred to El, with the Grotto of Pan at the base, the literal entrance to the netherworld, the Mount of Olives, with this temple on top, uh, when you go down into the Kidron Valley below and uh, follow that around to the south, it connects to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is where the Tophet was uh, constructed. The Tophet was the place where people would go and burn their children as an offering to Molech. So I think that was the connection where you had... uh, and because uh, because of that, the Valley of Hinnom later was called Gehenna by the Hebrews in the, the time of uh, Jesus and the apostles, and served as a symbol for the netherworld, a place of uh, eternal torment and punishment. But uh, I think significantly, Jesus recognized the significance of the Mount of Olives and this connection to this entity, this old rebel, because the last week of Jesus' life was split between the Temple Mount, teaching in the Temple in Jerusalem, and then on the Mount of Olives. He was betrayed at the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He was crucified on the Mount of Olives. He was put into a tomb on the Mount of Olives. According to 1 Peter 3, he descended into the abyss and proclaimed victory over these entities, that Peter and Jude both say are, are wrote are in chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. He ascended again, was uh, resurrected on the Mount of Olives, and uh, according to the Gospel of Luke, when he was uh, trans- uh, transported up into heaven, 
he left this earth from the Mount of Olives, and according to Zechariah chapter 14, when he returns, it will be on the Mount of Olives. So uh, I think there's some significance there. There's a, plenty of clues in the Bible that this location is very, very important. But uh, likewise, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus climbed a very high mountain with his uh, three most prominent uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, was at Caesarea Philippi, which is where the Grotto of Pan is located. The gates of hell that he referred to will not prevail against his church. Oh, and they're right over here, this big cave. And then he and his uh, three disciples climbed Mount Hermon and he was transformed into a being of light. It was essentially sending a flare into the spirit realm, declaring his divinity, and challenging these uh, fallen angels and demons to do something about it. Well, when, he, when, when Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock, and, and many people assumed that, that, that was, he was referring to Peter, um, but was he in fact referring to the entrance to that in other world, in other words, I will build my church on top of, you know, these false gods. Well, is that what he was yes, referring uh, to as the rock? He, he was standing in front of a nine thousand two hundred foot mountain. It is the tallest mountain in the Levant, and it was known as the uh, the Mount of Assembly for El, the Creator God of the Canaanites, where uh, he and his seventy sons, representing the gods of all of the nations, um, would meet to decree and determine the fates of the. Uh, the world. Jesus climbed that mountain and basically was transformed. Ezekiel and Elijah were there, and uh, I, I think that was sending a message to the spirit realm, because when you read the gospel accounts, that it was from there, after they came down the mountain, Jesus sent his 72, or 70, depending on your translation, disciples ahead of him into Galilee. That's a significant number. In the ancient Near East, that represented the complete set, or all of them. In other words, what Jesus was saying is like, look, I know I just came off the mountain where El and his 70 sons, representing all of the gods of the nations, held court, but my 70 will someday replace your 70. And then from there, Jesus went to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, and again, split the last week of his life between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Again, places significant to this rebel, uh, El Shemiyaza, Saturn, who I believe is still looking forward to that day when he gets out, because he will get out of the abyss, the Bible tells us this, uh, but thinks that when that happens, somehow he is going to uh, assume what he believes is his rightful place as the king of creation in the heavens. All right, and uh, I guess the countdown to the second coming of Saturn has begun. It happened on the winter solstice, December 21, 2020, marking the official beginning of the age of Aquarius. And uh, there are some powerful people who believe that this is uh, the beginning of a new golden age. Uh, not so. Derek Gilbert will explain when we come back. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Derek P. Gilbert from Skywatch TV, The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and The Return of the Watchers. So, um, as you indicate in the book, the, uh, this great conjunction that happened in the winter solstice of 2020, this alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, uh, 
does that then begin this countdown clock to the um, to uh, Saturn escaping from uh, uh, Tarsus and and the, the beginning of this? Well, what certain people believe is the beginning of a new golden age ruled over by Saturn. Well, the uh, the abyss isn't going to open up until God gives us permission for that. So I don't want to stoke any fear, but I do believe that there are people looking to. The poem by the, the Roman poet Virgil, who wrote uh, his, his fourth eclogue around 40 B.C., just after the assassination of Julius Caesar, they, they look at this as prophecy. And, and uh, this was written probably as a, a political, uh, um, uh, how can I say this? Uh, he, he was trying to curry favor with powerful people in Rome. When you're, you're a poet back in the day, you needed sponsors. And so there was a prominent politician by the name of Gaius Asinius Polio, who was about to become the highest ranking elected official in Rome at that time. But uh, there was a belief among the Romans, which they inherited from the Greeks, that there have been four ages of mankind, and uh, it began with the Golden Age when Saturn or Kronos ruled in the pre-flood era where heroes co-mingled with men and uh, heroes co-mingled with gods, that is. Um, that was followed by a Bronze Age or a Silver Age where things weren't quite as good, and then a Bronze Age which was violent and bloody and, uh, and awful, and then uh, the Iron Age was the, the age in which we currently live, and that uh, this, this polio who he was trying to suck up to would... Uh, bring in this new golden age, and I'll read just the relevant bit of uh, Virgil's poem here. Now the last age by Kume's Sibyl sung has come and gone, and the majestic roll of circling centuries begins anew. Justice returns, returns old Saturn's reign with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. And again, this is supposed to kick off a new golden age. Well, not coincidentally, this also tracks with the four uh, Medals that were in the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of Babylon, who dreamt of a statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a torso of bronze and legs of iron and then toes iron mixed with clay. And uh, there's a prophetic interpretation that the prophet Daniel gives him there. But uh, interesting that the pagans used the same metals and in the same order to describe the ages of humanity. But when Saturn and Jupiter met, in the night sky last winter solstice at zero degrees of Aquarius. According to New Agers, astrologers, and some occultists, this signaled the full entry into the age of Aquarius, and the constellation Aquarius is ruled by Saturn. Astrologers call this the great mutation, and this great mutation signals a, a transformation to a new era where power is decentralized and we are much less materialistic. <laughs> you will own nothing and you will be happy. Where have we heard that before? Exactly. And it was one month to the day after that uh, conjunction, Richard, that the World Economic Forum announced its official plans for the Great Reset. I think that's what we're looking at here. Um, and, I, and I think that's why we're seeing the, uh, the constant stoking of fear connected to the, uh, the ongoing COVID pandemic. And when that begins to wane when people finally get sick of it and say, look, we can read and we understand that this is uh, not the threat that we thought it was when it first broke out, then we'll be back to uh, being hammered with uh, climate change because the exactly. goal is to get us to give up control to a central government. <laughs> they call it decentralized, but it's not. Uh, how do you connect 
Saturn to the United States Capitol? Well, just as in Rome, where the Temple of Saturn was pushed off of Mons Saturnus and replaced by the, uh, the Temple of Jupiter, symbolizing his uh, Saturn being deposed by Jupiter and replaced as the king of the Pantheon. Um, in 1799, when the United States was laying out its official capital city, and that's capital with an A-L on the end, uh, the architect, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, wanted to call the building where Congress met Congress House. Not a very creative name, but that's what L'Enfant wanted to call it. Because it turns out, and I always thought we called the United States Capitol the Capitol because that's what you call the place where your government meets. It's the Capitol. That's just what you call right. it. But in 1799, that wasn't, the, that wasn't true. There was only one building on Earth where a legislative body met in a Capitol, and that was Williamsburg, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's home state. Jefferson insisted that it be called the Capitol because that's the name of the Temple of Jupiter in ancient Rome, the Capitolium. So named ah. because when they were digging the foundation for the capital, they found a severed head, which apparently to the uh, king of Rome, the last king, uh, Tarquin, uh, Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud, uh, he was an Etruscan. And apparently for Etruscans, you used a severed head when you wanted to communicate with the dead. That was how they uh, conducted their augury. So that was taken as a good sign. And so they decided to rename the hill from the Mount of Saturn, Mons Saturnus, to uh, the Capitolium. And they named the Temple of Jupiter the Capitolium, the Capitoline Hill uh, on, on, on which the Capitolium was built. And that's why Jefferson wanted the United States Capitol named the Capitol, not because he wanted to worship Jupiter, but because he wanted, I think, to evoke the image of Republican Rome. What's interesting, though, is that... Um, Jupiter being equated to Zeus, both storm gods, both kings of their respective pantheons. They were also equated to Baal in the Canaanite pantheon, likewise storm god, king of the pantheon. Two different places in the New Testament. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus equates Baal with Satan. And in Revelation 2, where Jesus is dictating his uh, letter to the church at Pergamum, he equates Zeus with Satan. So in effect, what Jefferson did probably unintentionally, was named the United States Legislative Headquarters for the Temple of Satan in ancient Rome. Wow. All right, uh, Derek, we've got to take another one final time out. We'll come back and pick up on that. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Derek P. Gilbert stays with us, the second coming of Saturn. And uh, in addition to opening up the phone lines, we'll also take questions from the YouTube live chat and the Rumble uh, live chat. So my live stream producer, Ryan, if you would uh, curate those for me and um, just send me those questions uh, over Skype and we'll, um, we'll get to those as well. So we were talking about the, um, the Capitol building in Washington, its connection to 
uh, Saturn and Jupiter. So I'm a little confused because uh, Zeus, as you point out, you know, the, the throne of Zeus uh, is also equated as Satan's throne. So how could Zeus uh, and, and um, uh, Saturn both be Satan? I argue in the book, and I'll try to be brief so we can allow more time for questions, uh, but uh, that the art inside the Capitol, the depiction of George Washington inside the Capitol dome, as uh, uh, in the painting called The Apotheosis of Washington, he actually represents Saturn ascending from the netherworld to take what he thinks is his rightful place among the gods and rule over the Golden Age, which are depicted by the scenes of commerce and agriculture and uh, industry uh, represented around the outside of the painting called the Apotheosis of Washington. It's it's not well known, but um, when Washington died, they had uh, the the architects had uh, gotten permission from Martha Washington to put Washington's body on permanent display in a chamber in the crypt, which is the main floor of the Capitol, and there was to have been a hole in the rotunda floor. There was for a while, um, through which viewers in the rotunda, visitors to the rotunda, could look down and see Washington. You'd have the portal there in the floor through which Washington's spirit would ascend through the oculus, the eye, to become uh, the the god. And uh, again, I go into the symbolism in the painting. Um, it turns out Washington was never... Uh, was never brought to the Capitol. It, the whole plan was interrupted by the War of 1812, and then uh, Martha passed away, and Washington's descendants said, no, no, we're going to keep him here in Mount Vernon. But uh, even the way he's depicted on the ceiling there with the purple cloth representing kingship, but the fact that his legs are wrapped in the cloth is similar to the way the statue of the idol of Saturn had his legs wrapped in wool in the temple of Saturn in Rome, except during the Saturnalia. So I, I think the imagery is suggestive of Saturn rising from the netherworld, from the, the, uh, the crypt through the oculus to the, uh, his uh, position in the sky depicted in the apotheosis of Washington. The fact that Washington wasn't buried there, did that forestall the second coming of Saturn in some way? <laughs> no, no. Uh, this will all happen when God allows it to happen. Um, as the ones who are confined to the abyss, we see in Revelation chapter 9, there are things that get out of the abyss. An angel is given a key to the bottomless pit, and these things come out, and they've got five months to torment humans without the seal of God on their foreheads. This mirrors the 150 days that the Ark of Noah was on the waters. That's mentioned in Genesis 7 and Genesis 8. 150 days in a 30-day lunar calendar, that's exactly five months. These entities who had created these hybrid children... Uh, were forced to watch from their confinement in Tartarus, the abyss, for five months while their children were being destroyed in the flood above. At the end, in, uh, during the Great Tribulation period, they will have five months to get revenge on those who've not been sealed by God. Ah, you also link the uh, capital, uh, the events of the Capitol um, uh, on January 6, 2020, to the return of Saturn. I have to give credit to my wife, Sharon, on this one. She spotted the symbolism. January 6th is a day that is um, commemorated in the Christian Church as Epiphany. Uh, it's called Theophany in the Eastern Orthodox Churches. It's the day that uh, celebrates the revelation of the divinity of Christ. So here we've got this event that took place in what many of our prominent politicians called our temple of democracy, or the most sacred space in our republic. People like Chuck Schumer and Amy Klobuchar, Nancy Pelosi, Dick Durbin, uh, Representative Liz Cheney, all and many, many political pundits. The sacred space has been desecrated just uh, this past week 
President Biden referred to the Capitol as uh, America's temple of democracy, as he uh, eulogized uh, former Senator Bob Dole. So you've got this idea that's been implanted in our heads that somehow the United States Capitol is sacred space. And, and, and then on theophany or epiphany, the day we acknowledge and recognize, celebrate the recognition of the divinity of Christ by the three wise men, the QAnon shaman wearing the buffalo hat leads a rebellion and a desecration. And in the book and in my previous book, Last Clash of the Titans, I go into some detail on the significance of bison or buffalo imagery among the old gods of Mesopotamia. You looked at an inscription from ancient Sumer, you could tell who the gods were by looking for the guys wearing the hats with the buffalo horns on it. Even the name Kronos, the king of the Titans, comes from a Semitic word meaning horns. Kronos is essentially the horned one. That's who we're dealing with here. I think this was a a nudge-nudge, wink-wink symbol or signal from the uh, fallen realm that, uh, hey, we're coming back. The celebration of Christmas during what is the ancient uh, celebration of Saturnalia, is it then, is it, is it unwise or, or uh, unchristian then to, to celebrate Christmas during Saturnalia? Well, no, because uh, Saturnalia ends on the 24th, and the, the way the early church arrived at December 25th was actually uh, pretty simple. It's not biblical. I mean, as a Christian, I recognize that there's nothing in the Bible that says we need to celebrate Christmas, but it is the one time a year we can mention the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, in public without being, uh, you know, shamed for it. The early church, in the, uh, as early as the 3rd century, trying to figure out when the birth of Jesus had taken place, there was a, an old tradition among the Jews that famous... Uh, 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 prophets would die on the same day that they were conceived. And so they tried to calculate the date of the crucifixion. They got it wrong because uh, they came up with the date March 25th of the year 29 AD. But that was that was it, that simple. You take March 25th, you add nine months, and you get December 25th. So that's all there was to it. No Christian until about the 12th century thought there was anything pagan about the celebration of Christmas. Ah, all right. That's good to know. Uh, a couple of quick questions here. Not Gordian asks, do the Hurrians still exist today, maybe as a diaspora? There are some who suggest they might, uh, their descendants might be the Armenians or perhaps the Kurds, uh, but it's, it's impossible to know that new research into uh, tracing DNA may uh, answer that question someday. Uh, Renee Image asks, I think you sort of ref- um, answered this, but... Um, she saw a documentary called Belly of the Beast, which shows yes. how the Capitol has a secret chamber. Is this true? Well, you mentioned the secret chamber beneath the rotundra, correct? Yes. In fact, I know the filmmakers, uh, Justin and Wes Fall, they're friends of mine, and Tom Horn, of That's course. That's right. Was, uh, yes, they've been on the program. Stuff. They're terrific. They're terrific. Yes. And, and a lot of what um, is in the book here is built on Tom's research for that documentary and for his books, uh, Zeitgeist 2025, uh, Apollyon Rising 2012. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I, I take it from there. My only, the only uh, twist in, in my view is that it's Saturn who's coming back, not Apollyon. Well, it is Apollyon because I believe that Saturn is Apollyon and, and Abaddon, just not the Antichrist. So I, I make a distinction between Apollyon and the Antichrist. Uh, core. Gemini asks, do you believe the Hindu gods are the same as these ancient gods, perhaps just under a different name? Yes, I haven't done enough study on the Hindu gods to make those connections yet, but there are some similarities. Um, The king of their gods, Indra, is likewise a storm god. All right. 
Uh, how do we get a copy of The Second Coming of Saturn, Derek? It's available through Amazon or at uh, any major bookstore and uh, can also be obtained through the Skywatch TV store, which is at skywatchtvstore.com. It uh, is available now in paperback, and the Kindle version will be released at Amazon on January 1st. Fantastic. The second coming of Saturn, the great conjunction, America's temple, and the return of the watchers. Any any uh, clues in the Bible as to, uh, aside from this great conjunction, any other signs as to when the second coming of Saturn will, will happen? Well, we've been trying to figure that out because we know that they only get five months at the end, but there's nothing explicit in Revelation 9 that says what happens to them when it's when that five months is over or when that five-month period ends. But uh, the good news is we've got a long way to go before we get to uh, Revelation 9 and the abyss opening up. But uh, I think we're closer to that uh, period now than we were um, even, say, 10 years ago. So no dates, though. No date setting. All right. Derek, always a delight. Thank you so much for hanging out the last hour, and I uh, hope we can do it again. Well, we will do it again, actually, uh, later this month, you and I on Coast to Coast AM. I look forward to it. Thank you, Richard. Likewise, Derek P. Gilbert, The Second Coming of Saturn. All right, when we come back, we'll talk dogmen, Bigfoot, Windigo, werewolves. Stay with us. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to everyone tuning us in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. And uh, hiya to those of you listening on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hey, you streaming us live at zoomerradio.ca and on the free Zoomer Radio app. And those of you catching the live stream on the YouTube and Rumble uh, channel, Strange Planet is the YouTube channel. And Richard Serrett's Strange Planet is where you'll find us on Rumble. And, of course, last but not least, hello to each and every one gathered in the YouTube live chat and the Rumble live chat. All right. They exist in myth and legend dating back to the earliest history of man. Different cultures of different names for the same creature, which has haunted the dark places of our collective psyche. Loop Garou, werewolf, lycanthropes. Rugaru, Michigan Dogman, the Beast of Land Between the Lakes, Ulanga Doglala, Shunka, well, 
Skinwalker. I couldn't pronounce the last one. The beast is known by many names, but they all lead to the ultimate apex predator. And the apex predator is the name of a series of four books, which include the titles Wolf Moon, Blood Moon, Hunter's Moon, and the fourth Horned Moon. All written by my next guest. D.A. Roberts is a cryptozoologist and author of fiction primarily in the horror, dystopian, and science fiction genres. He was born in Lebanon, Missouri. He now lives in Springfield, Missouri with his wife and sons. And for most of his career, D.A. served his community in law enforcement. D.A. also hosts a popular podcast called D.A. Ex Machina, along with co-host Steve Wildman, uh, Monrodas, and Neoma, uh, Neoma Finn best known for her work on the Dixie Cryptids and What If It's True podcasts. D.A. Roberts, welcome. Climb on board. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I was just mentioning to my previous guest, uh, Derek Gilbert, it's, uh, it's, all, it's all Missouri all the time. He was, uh, he's in the Ozarks as well. I'm an Ozarks boy, born and bred. I grew up here. It's, you know, with any luck, this is where I'll, I'll be when I'm an old, old man. All right. Well, uh, I got to ask you to, to sort of begin your um, your your journey into this whole field of of cryptids and and uh, uh, cryptid horror uh, writing on the lap of your uncle Buddy. Tell me about your uncle Buddy. My uncle Buddy was an amazing man. Uh, he he was he married into the family. He was full blood Cherokee Indian, but he married my my mother's sister, um, and he was like a second father to me. I just adored him. Uh, he passed away in December of twenty nineteen, and uh, it was a very very deep loss to lose him. I I I, I thought I just thought and still think the world of my uncle Buddy, but being Cherokee, I grew up listening to him tell stories about native legends and and tales of of of, of different creatures that, that that existed in their mythos, and 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 then you know later I I realized that some of these creatures were very much cryptids and. And uh, there are sightings all over the world and all over the United States of these creatures. But I, I spent my formative years going camping and hunting on his land. And I just I, I grew up listening to those stories and those really helped shape my 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 imagination uh, for where I want where 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 I wanted to be. I, I, it's, it's part of what made me want to be a writer in the first place between him and my mother. My mother really encouraged me to, to not only be an avid reader, but to pursue writing as well. And uh, it's those those early tales that really, really inspired me. So you, you tell the story of, of how, you know, you, you had this interest in Bigfoot and Dogmen, and you, you watched, like many of us of our generation, Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. and Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, um, there were Bigfoot movies and, of course, the uh, the Patterson film mm-hmm. that came out in 67. Uh, and you would go around to your relatives, you know, as a young a young man or a young boy, really asking, what do you think? Or, Is Bigfoot real? Have you ever seen one? And they thought you were being just silly. And then one day your Uncle Buddy pulled you aside and whispered, what? He uh, he picked me up after I'd been asking everybody you know about Bigfoot and they were all laughing at me because I was I was a fairly young kid, but that 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 glint that changing defining moment was when Uncle Buddy set me in his lap when nobody else was around and goes they're real because I've seen them, 
And wow. from then on, I, I, I was just hooked. I, I couldn't stop thinking about them. How'd you sleep that night, by the way? <laughs> well, my, my imagination is is always been something my, my siblings and my parents just marveled at because I was always creating these little goofy stories as a kid. And after my mother passed away, I found that, that she'd kept a lot of them in a drawer, and they were horrible. I mean, they were written by six, seven-year-old. They were really terrible. But their her encouragement really is what inspired me to want to continue the writing career. And um and it's something I love to do. Uh, I love being able to to share stories with people. And I've been so fascinated and involved in asking people about cryptids and going out camping and looking you know, looking for evidence, searching all these years, looking for my own experiences, and talking to people who have had their own. That I have I have used these experiences that I've gathered both from my my own personal experience and people to shape the behaviors of the creatures that I write about in my fiction. But to have confirmation from an adult, someone that you admired, that they are real, I mean, that must have – I mean, it's one thing to be interested in them and to read about them and to fantasize about them. But to have an adult Mm -hmm. say they are real, I mean, uh, did that – I mean, did that scare you? It was, a, we, it was a paradigm shift. I, I really was already firmly convinced they were uh, out there. Uh, but, but for, you know, like you said, for someone, someone, an adult to just admit, yes, they're real and I've seen them. And Uncle Buddy was not the kind of guy to spin yarns. He, he if he told me something, I believed it. He was just that, that type of person. He, he didn't, he didn't even want alcohol on his property. He was not a drinker. Uh, he smoked a pipe, <laughs> but uh, that was like his only vice. He was just a, a hell of a man. And for him to tell me something like that, I had no doubt whatsoever he was telling me the truth. And, and he saw them on his property, did he? Yes, he did. He lived uh, – there's a little town outside of where I grew up, and Lebanon is not a big town. Uh, it's only twelve to 15,000 now, and it was probably 8,000 when I was a kid. Um, and I grew up on a farm north of Lebanon, and Uncle Buddy had 108 acres on land near the Niangua River Valley. Then the closest town was a, a little bitty town called Eldridge, Missouri. And Eldridge is really nothing more than a couple of houses and a gas station. That's it. It's just a tiny little hamlet in the middle of nowhere, and he was probably 15 miles from it. Wow. And so what did he see on his land? He uh, said he, he had a basement with a walkout, a walkout basement, and he had his pool table down there. And he told me he was walking down the stairs one night and flipped on the light to go down to play pool. And he stopped about halfway down the stairs when he saw a Bigfoot creature standing in the sliding glass door. It was shut, but it was just standing there looking at him. And he said it filled the entire entire sliding glass door. I said, well, what'd you do? He goes, well, I reached for a rifle. And uh, I, I turned and looked, and it was it was already moving away. He said, so he went out the door, and he lived on a bluff that went down to the Niangara River Valley, and it was descending the bluff that uh, there's no way any human could have went, went, went down it. It was probably a 75-degree degree angle straight down almost, and it was just grabbing rocks and trees and everything he could get his hand on, hands on and went straight down that bluff and down into the river valley. My word. I said, did you shoot at it? And he said, no, no, I did not. Uh, And and, um, your Uncle Buddy, obviously uh, a huge inspiration. He's Mm -hmm. immortalized now. He passed away in 2019, but he's now immortalized as a a character uh, in in, um, the uh, the Apex Predator series of books, right? Correct. Who is he Uh, in the books? Who who is he? 
He and I based a character called named Jay Matoska off of him, and Matoska means white bear, and uh, it, it that character is just very much Uncle Buddy. I mean, anybody that knows him knows that character is is based on him. My my, my siblings spotted it immediately. And um, tell me about the, the other protagonist, Gray Eagle. William Gray Eagle is um, he's half Lakota, half Cherokee, and he's a he joined the military. Um, after a career in the military, he became a cop. And when this creature starts killing people in the little little department that he works for, uh, he realizes that it's it's not a normal creature, especially when he starts trying to track it. And the, the first part of the book, of the first book, Wolf Moon, is him reconciling what he's been trained in versus what his spiritual beliefs are. And he basically has to come to grips that those two not only – intersect but he has to use the training from one to and the beliefs beliefs from from his his spiritual side to help stop this creature it takes all all of his his abilities to do it so what is the the um legend of the werewolf in native american culture i mean I, most of us are familiar i guess with more of the european tradition of werewolves and the werewolf movies with lon cheney jr and mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the full moon and the silver bullet and sulfur and all of that stuff. But is it the same type of, of legend that comes uh, when we're talking about werewolves? Well, with the Cherokee, with the Cherokee term is Ulanga Dog Lala. It means basically long dogs. Uh, and they are, they are um, bipedal wolves, uh, but they don't, shift, they don't shift forms. That is their form. Um, the 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 werewolf mythology kind of blended with it when the European settlers came here and and their their stories uh, began to meld. But the original version were a type of type of creature that we now refer to as the dog man uh, that has been seen all over the all over the United States and all over the world. And and the 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 legend of the dog man then uh, or or these encounters with dog men are, are they typically do they typically end in a, you know, a, a grisly death. Uh, are, are these dogmen, are they in fact apex predators according to Native American myth? Oh, very much so. Uh, the dogman origins, if you if you look into to cryptid research, um, most people that report a Bigfoot encounter, uh, generally they either just see it or they feel a presence and they feel it pacing them or hear it pacing them. And it's basically, basically they, they have an encounter and they leave. Uh, very rarely do you hear an, an aggressive Bigfoot encounter, but dogman encounters are, are very, very different. Dogman encounters tend to be all described as uh, when, when people see them, they describe it as hellish or demonic. Uh, their, their accounts from land between the lakes in Kentucky on the Kentucky Tennessee border of people being attacked. Um, there was a famous case that happened uh, allegedly in 1982 when a family of four was killed by a dogman in uh, the land between the lakes uh, public recreation area. Um, sightings of a bipedal wolf um, in that area date back to the 1600s when French trappers were going through there and referred to it as the as the loop guru or the French word for werewolf. Uh, Native American lore dates back farther than that. Uh, much like the sightings of Bigfoot go back centuries among Native Americans, uh, different tribes have different names for these creatures. And even tribes that had no contact whatsoever from opposite coasts are describing similar creatures and they have their own names for them. 
describe their, I mean, aside from being a, a, a bipedal wolf, uh, describe their, their physicality, if you could. They are usually described as having very spindly-looking hands, almost like a raccoon. Uh, they're human-like hands, but they if you've ever seen a raccoon's hands, they look almost like they have an extra digit. They don't, but they're really kind of oddly shaped. But they're also in, in claws. Uh, they, they, their hands don't look normal, uh, but they do have human-like hands. Um, some are described as having uh, plantigrade feet, while others are, de- are described as digigrade. Uh, digitigrade, um, meaning. Can you explain they, the difference there? Plantigrade feet are like ours, uh, walk walking on a flat foot, uh, like like a human or a primate. Uh, digitigrade are like a uh, dog's back leg. They have right. that kind of hawk to it. Yes. Um, so a lot of oh, there 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 are different sightings that describe different types uh, of of stance, and I don't know if it means it's a different type of creature or just. Uh, a misidentification by the eyewitnesses, but there are hundreds and hundreds of dogman sightings all over the country, and they're actually becoming more common. And what about the upper torso? Are they more muscular than a than a typical wolf? A lot of them. A lot of them are described as being lean but muscular, uh, not broad like a bigfoot. A bigfoot would be thick of the chest and and arms. These are built more like like a canid. Their 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 chest and shoulders are are more canid like, uh, but they do have a wider range of motion because of the arms. And they um they're the the, the commonality in the descriptions is people really refer to them as as hellish or demonic um and they describe the eyes as glowing almost of their own like a like a glow, glowing a a dark orange or a yellow or a gold um one of my favorite uh, favorite accounts i read about happened outside of the land between between the lakes area as a, a man was in bed one night and uh he had a dog door in his kitchen for his dog to go in and out well his dog woke him up whining in his bedroom which was uncommon and it was growling toward the stairs so he got up and grabbed a shotgun and went downstairs and there was a dog man halfway through his dog door trying to get into his kitchen oh my and before he could get a shot off it ducked back out and took off but had his dog not alerted him it might have gotten in the house uh what about the fangs the uh, the uh, incisors are they larger than a typical well canine they they are larger, but it's because of the size scale is much bigger. Uh, they would be very much like a typical canine tooth, only the f- the fact that it's seven approximately seven to eight feet tall. I mean, the the just the sheer size difference is going to make the canines bigger. Uh, I mean, when we we talk about Bigfoot, we we have plaster casts, we have mm-hmm. we have fuzzy fuzzy photographs. Uh, what about with with dogmen? Do we have do we have plaster casts? Do we yes, have we do hair samples do we have good quality photographs uh a lot of the photographs are fairly blurry much like the bigfoot bigfoot photos and i i credit that to the fact that if uh, you happen upon something in the woods that is a total paradigm shift be it bigfoot or or, or a dog man and it frightens you your first response is not going to be to stabilize a picture. If you think of taking one at all, it's going to be a quick snap while you're while you're running away. So uh, a lot of photographic evidence is is difficult to obtain for those very reasons because people are very nervous, very gun shy, scared. Um, but uh, the uh, Jody Cook of the North American Dogman Project has numerous plaster casts of feet and hair samples. And. Um the size of the print again larger than your average so. dog right 
larger than a than would be typical for a wolf with an elongated lower heel. Interesting. And uh, your uncle Buddy had a Bigfoot encounter. What did he tell you about dogmen? Uh, he described them as creatures of, of legend that he had never seen one, uh, but the elders that he knew had all spoken of them, uh, spoken of them as being very real, very real creatures, and that they were to be avoided at all costs because they were predators. So he's he he was a Cherokee, correct? Um, and there have been you mentioned dogmen sightings all over. We have the be the, the beast of Bray Road, which is Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You've got the land between lakes, which is Kentucky. Um, I mean, are the there Michigan dogman as well. Michigan dogman, uh, right. There have been recent sightings up in New England. Uh, a family was uh, stalked and chased into their homes, um, basically held captive in their home because they couldn't. Every time they tried to get out to go to a vehicle, the creatures would charge them. And uh, they had a, basically a night of terror as these creatures kept trying to get up to the house and get in. Um, there's uh, another incident that happened in uh, Taylor, Mississippi, uh, which is uh, was referred to the siege of Lockett Ranch, uh, where a family a family named Lockett uh, had a year-long standoff with a, with a clan of dogmen, and they eventually fled their land over it. Wow. I had no idea. I had no idea. Um now the uh, in in Europe there are dogmen sightings and often mm-hmm. they're associated with sacred uh, sites, Stonehenge or Avery or different places like that. What about in, is there a connection between dogmen and, I don't know, uh, native burial mounds or anything like that? I think there's a lot of connection between both Bigfoot and dogmen and, and burial sites. I'm not sure what the connection actually is. But there are a lot of sightings where these cryptids have been seen either in or around graveyards. Um, In fact, um, there's a small graveyard inside um, Land Between the Lakes. Uh, It's called the the Nickel Cemetery, and there's been a number of sightings in and at that cemetery. Is it possible they're looking for freshly dead corpses? It's possible. Uh, they they might be drawn to the smell of carrion, uh, or they might be hoping to catch somebody unawares that's not paying attention, you know, at planting flowers or something. I, I mean, do, are they hunting humans for meat or just for the thrill of the kill? I uh, I think they're they're top of the line predators. Uh, if you look at the David Polites missing four one one cases, yes. there are thousands of people that have gone mis- gone missing in the national parks, and I think you know while some of them can be attributed to people getting you know off the trail and just never being found, fall into a crevasse. Um, there are some that just simply can't be explained. When they call in search and rescue, trained dogs will refuse to follow the scent. Uh, they might find a, a piece of bone of the person years later in an area that was searched many, many times. Uh, I, I think that there, there's a, a case to be had for there being large unknown predators in our national park system. And the reason I believe that is if you're familiar with the book The Wilderness Hunter written by Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. Teddy Roosevelt talks about the Bauman incident where a, where a, where a Bigfoot-type creature killed a trapper and the other one fled. Um, there's a growing number of researchers that think that Bauman was actually Teddy Roosevelt. And he used an assumed name because he had political aspirations when he wrote the book. He didn't want people to think he was crazy. So Bauman 
had a had a, a direct contra, uh, contact with a deadly cryptid that killed his partner. And if that was, in fact, Teddy Roosevelt, it would explain the fact that as soon as he became president, one of the first things he did was create the National Park System, which isolates millions of acres of land in hard-to-reach areas. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. All right, DA, we'll take a quick time out. This is good, folks. DA Roberts. And uh, we're talking cryptids. We're talking cryptid horror novels. Apex Predator is a series of four books. We'll uh, delve further into some Native American legends of cryptids as well. Stay with us. Don't go away. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. I'll tell you what, I have a whole new, well, appreciation isn't the right word, respect for dogmen. I had no idea that um, they were this closely aligned with the legend of the werewolf. I thought that people had sightings of dogmen. Maybe they had kind of an unsettled feeling. I had no idea that dogmen were apex predators, that they were tearing human beings limb from limb, uh, perhaps devouring their flesh. D.A. Roberts is with us in his uh, series of four books, The Apex Predator, uh, again, the titles are uh, Wolf Moon, Blood Moon, Hunter's Moon, and the, this is the fourth and final installment, Horned Moon. What's a horned moon? A- the horned moon. The horned moon is uh, when the moon is waning and the, the it, most of it is is blocked out, except for the the little sliver at the bottom that looks like a set of horns. Ah, so waxing and waning. I got it. Correct. Um, so uh, there will there a, be more books in the series. The next one's going to be the next one's going to be called Dark Moon. Ah, okay. Is there a connection according to Native American legends and the Dogmen? Is there a connection between lunar cycles and appearances of the Dogmen? Yes and no. Uh, the first moon of the new year, generally during the coldest time of the year in January, is known as the wolf moon. When the beasts are ravening at the at the edge of the camp, when the, the creatures that are, that are still active are looking for food because a lot of it's gone dormant or you know left left for warmer pastures. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the Native Americans very much believed that these creatures came more in the harsh winters than they did in the times of plenty because a predator like this would eat what it could catch and i would say something that size could easily catch a deer or an elk and uh do the native americans believe that dog and or and you as well uh that dog men are flesh and bone or are they in part a spiritual entity well, there's, there's schools of thought on both of that. Uh, there's a condition known as cynocephali, uh, which talks about um, – it dates back you know, centuries. Um, it's a condition whereupon they have a, a human-type body but the head of a dog, much like Anubis. Um, in fact, um, St. 
I believe it's St. Michael, is known as the dog-headed saint. And a lot of the Catholic depictions show him uh, as having the head of a dog. Um, no, I'm sorry, it's St. Christopher, not St. Michael. Um, but um, Sinocephali has been reported for for centuries. They spoke of uh, men with the heads of wolves and, and the lion men of Judah in the Bible. Uh, Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus both spoke of, of dog-headed creatures on islands they visited during their journeys. So creatures with the head of a dog that appear almost human um, have been something that people have been talking about, that not just in recent years, but dating back to antiquity. Um, so it, it's not just Native American lore. It's It's been a, been prevalent everywhere. Um, so yeah, looking, I mean, when you talk about the, the god Anubis, the Egyptians firmly believed that there were, there were people with the, the head of animals. Um, so, you know, the, um, the, the condition is not unheard of. Uh, it, it is, it's pretty terrifying, uh, but it is, it's not unheard of. So, um, are the, are the dogmen, is there, are there any sort of, um, supernatural aspect to them? I would think so. Yes. I think that there, there is something more supernatural about them. Um, but, they're, I think they're also very much flesh and blood. Um, uh, it's it's a type of creature that is is so steeped in in lore and myth that we don't know a hundred percent what it is. Uh, there there's so many people that like especially with Bigfoot, they lean toward a supernatural aspect, or they think that there might be an alien connection with Bigfoot. Uh, yeah, and a lot of Native American tribes believe that Bigfoot is a, a trans-dimensional creature that it can come in and out of our dimension as whenever it chooses to, uh, and a lot of that uh, also travels over to the Dogman. Uh, so it's very possible that it's a supernatural creature. But I, I, I've my background in law enforcement. I tend to lean toward what I can what I can tangibly find as evidence. So me personally, I think it's a flesh and blood creature. It's just very strong. Are they seen in the daytime? There have been a lot of accounts of it in the daytime. Uh, there were dogmen that have been reported by the U.S. Border Patrol near the U.S. Mexico border in Arizona and New Mexico. Really? Very much so. My yes, word. sir. My word. And uh, are they fleet of foot? Very quick, uh, much like a wolf. You're not going to outrun one, even though it's on. It's walking upright. Um, there are a lot of accounts, and and this is something I find very interesting about the dogman. There are a lot of accounts of people that report seeing the dogman on all fours prior to it approaching them, and just before it stood up, they would hear a popping sound, much like you crack your knuckles, and then it would stand up and have hands. To me, that that speaks of a type of morphology to the to the to the to the hands that would allow them to transition from going on all fours and still be able to use the hands later um almost like they're drawing their fingers back and going back to a more paw-like structure uh so they would be much faster on all fours um and in order for them to be seen all over the country what kind of breeding population would we need do you think it would be be hard to estimate, but considering how many acres of unexplored land there are in in the North America alone, I mean, uh, look at look at the Canadian wilderness, the vastness of unexplored areas. Uh, you get out to um, to um, 
the Western territories out near Alaska, there are hundreds of miles where there's literally no settlements um, or even roads. Uh, here in the United States, if you look at a a satellite map of the U.S. and you follow major river systems, even despite the fact that we have huge cities like Chicago and you know St. Louis and New York and L.A., there are still massive sections of unbro- unbroken wilderness. And some of that runs right through the Ozarks, right along the rivers through the Mark Twain National Forest. And that I think that explains why we get so many sightings, because you find them not only in the wilderness areas, but generally along major riverways. Okay, so they're the apex predator. Um, have there any? Have there ever ever been a documented case of a a dogman en- encounter with a Bigfoot? The uh, Choctaw, uh, the Choctaw uh, Indians referred to uh, the two as having territorial wars. Uh, there are a number of native tribes that talk about Bigfoot and dogman being very aggressive toward each other and even even attacking each other on site. Uh, in the land between the lakes area, the, if you look at the north end of LBL, you, you will see that's where the dogman encounters are, are clustered. But you get Bigfoot accounts in the south end of LBL. And we're, this is not a small park. It is huge. Uh, and in the middle, they have herds of elk and buffalo. Uh, so I think they have very clearly delineated their territory and both prey on those elk and buffalo. I'm just trying to imagine the. I mean, I have uh, our my bedroom window opens out into our backyard, and in the summer we have the windows wide open, and and the sound of two raccoons squaring off. I mean, mm-hmm. it is otherworldly for people who have heard it know what I mean. I mean, it is frightening to hear raccoons snarling and growling, and uh, I can't imagine what it would sound like for a Bigfoot and a dog man to square off. That must just be absolutely hellish. It would sound like a, you know, a, somebody with a, uh, a, a semi truck crashing through the woods. I would, I would estimate probably, you know, you'd hear trees smashing and snarls and growls. Um, in fact, they, uh, they uh, say that Bigfoot is capable of infrasound. So I would say you would feel the sound as much as hear it. What about the intelligence of these creatures? I think they're very intelligent. Like, cunning intelligent but i don't think they're human level intelligent some people i uh, in accounts i've read say that there seems to be some sort of a um what's the word i'm looking for uh not telekinesis um or is it telekinesis? telepathic telepathic communication thank you telepathic communication with these creatures what have you heard about that there are a number of people that report having what they call mind speak with bigfoot um I'm not gonna not gonna call anybody out and say they're wrong. I'm not gonna argue with it because I I, never, I make no claims of being an expert in in cryptozoology, and anybody that claims they're an expert is is selling you something because there are no experts in this field. They're just people that have researched it and developed their own theories over the over time. But since we don't have a body to study, these theories are just that they're theories. So there are really no experts in this field. But m- my opinion is that what people are thinking is mind speak because a lot of them they a lot of people who say they had mind speak it was they had this this overwhelming feeling like get out like hearing the voice the voice get out but I, i've experienced that feeling in dangerous areas but it's not something talking to me it's that 
that survival instinct in the back of your head that's paying attention that notices there are no animal sounds anymore in your area and you feel like you're being stalked and your primitive brain is telling you to get out. I personally think that's what it is. I don't know that people are having lengthy Bigfoot conversations through MindSpeak. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not going not gonna to say it's impossible, uh, but it just hasn't happened to me. I haven't experienced it. All right. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back with D.A. Roberts cryptozoologist and author of horror dystopian cryptid horror science fiction genres and uh, we're talking about the apex predator folks goes by different names werewolves dogmen back with more of our conversation we'll also open up the phones and take questions from the uh, the live chats as well stick with us don't go away Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Yet another reason not to go out into the woods alone at night. We're talking Dogmen. D.A. Roberts, the Apex Predator series of books. Uh, it's uh, now numbering four. We've got uh, Wolf Moon, Blood Moon, Hunter's Moon. The fourth is Horned Moon and uh, another one on the way. Um, any, um, I'm up here in, in uh, Ontario, southwestern Ontario, around the Great Lakes, Lake mm-hmm. Erie, Lake Ontario. Any Dogmen sighting up here do you know of? Uh, there are dogman sightings all over that area. I mean, with the Michigan dogman and the Beast of Bray Road so close, uh, there are Canadian sightings of dogman as well. Um, just about anywhere you've got a Bigfoot sighting, you also can find dogman sightings in those areas because they seem to share the same um, prey items, the same habitats. So if they can't find a human, they'll settle for a, a small dog, a large dog, maybe some livestock, I'm guessing. Well, wolves are wolves are omnivorous. They will eat just about anything they can kill, uh, and I would say that same attribute will would, would uh, go over to a dogman as well. I mean, if uh, if they've got an opportunity to kill and eat a deer, they'll 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 take the opportunity. Uh, but they're probably just as likely to go after a stray hiker. Do they work in packs the way the regular wolves do? Some say yes, some say no. Uh, there's been a lot of individual sightings of dogmen. They've been seen alone, uh, but there are just as many that people have seen them in groups uh, or started out only seeing one and realized they were being surrounded before they got out of the area. Um, so I, I think they do hunt in packs personally. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's not good. One is enough. One is enough. Now they, they hunt in packs. Oh, great. Um, so what about you, in your work in, in law enforcement? Um, have you ever run across any, I don't know, a, a potential dogman encounter or been, been asked to uh, investigate a possible dogman encounter? Well, I've uh, I've been you know privy to animal mutilations and, and missing pets uh, that just disappeared with, you know without explanation. But those could have been easily attributed to existing wildlife like bobcats, and we have mountain lions in Missouri and black bears as well. Uh, in, in times when when the weather's getting bad and food's a little lean, uh, the bigger predators will come closer to civilization and start taking out pets because they're easy easy uh, easy prey items. Uh, but I. I kept my my 
my cryptozoology research very separate from my law enforcement my law enforcement career because if defense attorneys get wind of you being a you know an amateur cryptozoologist, uh, they will use that against you on the stand because they will try to destroy your credibility. But one day, perhaps, uh, DA, uh, you like like uh, Gray Eagle, those two worlds could collide. Very much so. But I, I'm retired now, so I can ah. I can talk freely. Uh, but I have a lot of friends that are still in law enforcement that have had experiences that would that have told me the experiences, but said never attach my name to this because it'll ruin my credibility on the defensive stand. All right. Well, without involving names, can you share one of those stories of a law enforcement officer and a, a dog man? Absolutely. There's an area about 40 miles south west of here, uh, an old abandoned campground called the Joe Bald Recreation Area. Uh, I've had a, had some odd experiences down there myself, but this happened to a deputy uh, that works for the, worked for the Stone County Sheriff's Department. Uh, it's an abandoned campground. The Army Corps of Engineers shut it down around 1999 or, the, or 2000 after there have been a number of disappearances involved with the park. Uh, it's basically been reclaimed by nature. You, there's still like bad, uh, badly uh, badly in state in need of repair roads that go back to this campsite area, but it's closed off. You've basically got to go in there at your own risk. Uh, it's completely overgrown. You can still find the concrete like um, picnic tables and, and camping areas in the woods, but they've been overgrown. Um, and that was a place that a lot of the deputies would go down and park their vehicles away from the beaten path so they could do reports without being disturbed and things like that. Well, this uh, this particular deputy was sitting down there one night filling out a report, and um, he just he said he kept having the feeling that he was being watched. And uh, just out of the blue, something came up behind his vehicle and slammed its hands down. And he said it was definitely hands uh, on the de- the deck of his trunk and almost bottomed the truck, out, the, the, uh, the uh, charger out. He hit his brakes because he was in park and it, the red light lit up something very broad and hairy and he could see its hands were still on the trunk deck. Uh, and he just threw it in gear and punched it because it wasn't, it wasn't a person, obviously. It was some sort of creature. And he believed he, he believed it was a Bigfoot creature. Uh, he rocketed out of the area and drove back into town, pulled into a convenience store, got out, and the deck of his trunk had been caved in. Wow. Wow. Uh, let's see here. Uh, well, we're almost getting ready to head into a break. So why don't we do that? We'll come back. And I've got a bunch of questions lined up from the uh, the YouTube live chat. And we'll also o- open up the phone lines at 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740 and toll free from just about anywhere. 866-740-4740. 866-740-4740. Back with more after these. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, uh, DA, let's jump into the or dive into the uh, YouTube live chat questions. And let's see, we've got Solar Warden. Uh, asking, uh, what are your thoughts on the legendary Montauk monster? Was it a genuine cryptid or some kind of messed up lab experiment? Also, any thoughts on the Sierra sounds? 
Well, I think the Montauk monster was probably an experiment due to the the close proximity to the Plum Island Research Facility. Uh, I think it was an experiment that somehow escaped, uh, and would also explain why the uh, the body just vanished after a few days. Uh, so I would very much think that that Montauk the Montauk monster was was probably a government experiment, something that they were pre- uh, performing experiments on or something. Uh, I have uh, actually on my my podcast, I was able to interview. Uh, Ron Moorhead. Uh, we talked at length about the uh, Sierra sounds. Um, the recordings he made were analyzed by the Navy, and they put it through a crypto linguistics computer to try to to try to determine if it was a language. And not only was it determined to be a language that they they couldn't break the code on, uh, it exhibited characteristics both above and below the human vocal spectrum. So there's no way a human could have made it. And it was definitely a language. Uh, so I think Ron Moorhead legitimately captured Bigfoot speaking. Uh, as I, I interviewed him a couple of years ago, if memory serves, he described the language as sounding almost like, like uh, what did he say, samurai or something like yeah, that? Yeah, they referred to it as samurai chatter. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Show Me the Truth 74 asks, a bit of a long shot, but do you have any stories from Palm de Terre State Park in Missouri? I've camped there many times and saw possible UFOs. I have camped in Palm de Terre many times myself. Uh, there are a number of Bigfoot accounts in that area, including one where a fisherman that was near uh, near the dam uh, spotted two of them uh, at the edge of the water like they were trying to catch fish. Oh, Wow. Amazing. Our good friend YY asks, what can you tell us, uh, DA, about Wendigo and Skinwalkers? Well, Skinwalkers are primarily a Navajo legend, although similar similar legends exist in other tribes as well. Uh, but the Skinwalkers are, are shaman who went to pure dark side. Uh, they committed an act so vile that it, it basically cursed them. Uh, they... Um, while being similar to the uh, the werewolf legend, they are not limited to a wolf form. They are la- supposedly able to change into anything. Uh, so the skinwalkers are are very different than a dogman legend. It's, it's for the, simply for the fact that they can take on any form. Uh, the Wendigo, however, is very specific. Uh, the, the All of the legends around the Wendigo, and there's about a dozen different spellings and pronunciations of the Wendigo, the Wintico, the Wendiga. Uh, the list goes on and on with the Wendigo, but they're all very similar in the stories. That during lean times in the dead of winter, when starvation was close at hand, if somebody broke broke the taboo of eating human flesh, they would be cursed to become this ravenous beast that was always hungry and always hungry for human flesh. Um, there are documented cases of it uh, in Canada, um, up along the, the Trans-Canadian Highway back – I want to say it was in 2008 or 2007, there was a case that they have identified. They called it Wendigo psychosis, where a guy, for unknown reasons, just decided to attack and eat a guy, another passenger on a bus, on a Greyhound bus traveling down the highway. Oh, right. Yes, he cut his head off. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they've, uh, they, they actually referred to that as Wendigo psychosis. Uh, but in a lot of the, especially the Algonquin legends, not only can you become a Wendigo by eating human flesh, but you can also be possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo. Uh, so uh, they refer to it as Wendigo psychosis now, but it, it could have simply been the spirit of the Wendigo possessed him. 
Uh, you have another series of, well, you have a number of series of books. One is Codename Wild Hunt, and you've got Curse of the Wendigo. Correct. Tell us a little bit about uh, that that whole series of books and, and that particular um, volume. When I, uh, when I first started really digging deep into cryptid lore, I kept hearing a persistent rumor that there was a group of military special forces that hunted dangerous cryptids. I kept hearing this rumor from different locations. Uh, so my codename Wild Hunt series is about that unit. I created a specific unit that that's what they do. They hunt down dangerous cryptids, especially when they start killing people. And they're, they're doing so in a way they want to keep it from the public eye. Uh, so that's that's what that book series is about. It's about the special forces unit that hunts them down. Um, in that specific case of the Curse of the Wendigo, uh, they they encounter a Wendigo that has been been attacking people in the Minnesota woods. And um, when they engage the creature, they have to find out the hard way, unfortunately, which parts of the, the Wendigo lore are real and which parts are made up. Uh, there are... There are a number of ways that vary with tribes on how they're how they're supposedly killed. Uh, one way you have to cut its heart out with a silver knife and then burn the body and the heart separately. Uh, there are others other ways where you remove the head. Other ways that refer to using fire. Um, so what this team encounters, uh, they try. They have to keep running through different versions of the lore until they find what actually works. Wow, that's got uh, Amazon Prime uh, or Netflix series written all over it. Has Hollywood I, I, come I would, calling, DA? I would love it if they did. I would love to see any of these series made in, into books. I have uh, the Lakeview Man series, which is about a small sheriff's department here in Missouri that keeps that deals that is dealing with cryptid occurrences that keep keep arriving in their area. Uh, I have the of course, Apex Predator series, the codename Wild Hunt series, a new series that has one book out called The Nightmare Hunter, which is about a – it's very much um, – think Carl Kolchak. It's oh, an invest- one of my favorites. Yes. It's an investigative reporter that's digging into these, these cryptid reports and through – basically dumb luck very much in the Carl Kolchak fashion, discovers the real and winds up neck deep in it. Um, I've also got a fantasy, a fantasy series in the works. The first book is not out yet. Uh, I have a sci-fi series called The Lost Legion. There are two books of that out. And I have a zombie series called The Ragnarok Rising Saga. It's a 10-book series where I blend elements of the zombie apocalypse with Norse mythology. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um Sigma Six asks, DA, what are your thoughts on Skinwalker Ranch? Any idea what's going on there? There is so much going on with the Skinwalker Ranch. I, I don't know that I could really nail it down to any one thing. They've seen UFOs there. They've seen Skinwalker-type creatures there. They've seen portals open. Um, the, the, I think that area is a nexus point. Uh, maybe the dimensional barriers are thinner there. I don't know. I do know that that land was cursed. Um, years and years ago, the, the Ute tribe began enslaving the Navajo. And when the Navajo fled that area, they cursed it. And uh, that land has been cursed, and everybody that's lived on it has either fled or sold the land in a very very short order. That land has changed hands a lot over the last hundred years. But it was allegedly cursed by Navajo shaman who were getting vengeance against the Uinta Ute for, for enslaving their people. 
Uh, we were just talking about the Night Stalker and and, and Carl Kolschak, one of the great characters of all time. And I just noticed on the uh, on the Skype call, you're wearing a straw fedora. Is that an homage to Mr. Kolschak? Yes, sir. It's actually a reproduction. It's called the Night Stalker. Oh wow! I got to get me one of those. Uh, if you look online, uh, if you look up uh, reproduction of the Carl Kolchak or Kolchak hat, or I can find the link and send it to you. But it's an authentic reproduction of Carl's hat. Do you have the seersucker suit as well? Uh, no, uh, my wife would probably kill me, kill me if I showed up in his seersucker suit. <laughs> I would Nobody could wear a seersucker suit and and sneakers and the I way that uh, flash cube Dar- cameras. Yeah, and Darren McGavin could. Yes, indeed. Um, so. What's next? I mean, uh, my gosh, you have – are you writing uh, – I mean, how do you write? Um, do you write long long form? Do you type – bang it out on a manual typewriter? And that's the way I picture you is, is hammering away on a, in a, on a manual typewriter. I, I would love to do that, uh, to write on a manual typewriter because I just love the feel of it. But transferring that into Word documents is extremely difficult. So I do my writing on the, on the computer. I used to actually write it out by hand. Uh, and then my wife would, would transcribe it onto the computer for me. But I, uh, in a, an incident that I won't go into, I sliced, I'm left-handed. I sliced open my left hand between the thumb and the palm. And it was like 48 stitches to put it oh back my. together. Um, and as a result, I, if I write with my left, well, I'm left-handed again. Uh, if I write for any length of time, my hand cramps so bad I can't I can't write very long. So I, now I just got into the habit of typing it all on the computer, and now that's pretty much how it goes. But I do want to get one of those old manual typewriters for the shelf in my writing room. Uh, well, now they have the the computer keyboards that's that sound and feel like a manual typewriter. Yeah, I told them, my wife I wanted one of those for Christmas. I hope I get it. There you go. All right. Well, what a delight, uh, DA. I can't believe I've been in this uh, business 20 years, and this is the first time we've crossed paths. So it's going to be the first of many, I hope. I hope so, yes. Uh, you're uh, you're just absolutely captivating. And uh, uh, now you gave me yet another reason to check under my bed before I uh, <laughs> hop into the old schlafen sack. You ever, have you ever scared yourself with your writing? I, I've written scenes that were emotionally draining, and I've also written scenes that have kind of given me the willies. Like I, I was writing one scene in one of the Lakeview Man books. I was actually the first Lakeview Man book, and uh, my wife tapped on the door, and she's like, honey, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and the dog wants out. I don't want to go out in the yard by myself. Do you want to take him? And I said, yeah, sure. So I grabbed my jacket, and it was chilly out, and I took the dog into the backyard. And I just had this weird heebie-jeebie feeling the whole time because I'd just been writing this really creepy scene. I'm like, okay, the dog's going to go out during the daylight from here on out. (laughs) All right. Well, a great pleasure, D.A. Thank you so much. Thank you. D.A. Roberts. Look for all of his books uh, at Amazon. The Apex Predator. All right, my thanks to Ryan and uh, to Carlos. I'll be back next week. Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, will be here for the full two hours. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.